This Easter feels different, doesn't it? A little bit. Certainly feels different than last year. Um, I remember last Easter being at Kesslinger campus. We were live streaming the service. It was the worship band and the tech team were there. Pastor Jeff and I, I think Pastor Brian as well, and, and then just a gigantic empty room. Um, and we were all gathered in our homes and, and the body of Christ around sharing a core conviction that Jesus is alive. We, we were in full lockdown mode at the time, so we were with our family. Some of you were in your home by yourself as individuals, but we gathered around that core conviction, but we were apart from the community, from each other. And so this year, there just seems this, um, this joy that comes in being able to gather together. I guess my, my sense of appreciation for the community of the followers of Jesus, being able to, to be in the same room at the same time, to be able to worship like we just worship, to be able to acknowledge those things together, my heart just values and appreciates it more. And of course, this is what the resurrection is, Right? It is a victorious king bringing new life. And we being the people of this victorious king. So after a year that was marked in so many ways by isolation and by conflict and by case counts and loss, I am, I am ready to be with followers of Jesus today to declare that he is risen. That the grave is empty, that we have new life in him because of what he did on our behalf. Like, I'm just ready to party with you guys <laughs> today. And so I, I appreciate you being here, and I appreciate that we can um, celebrate together that he reigns in victory and that he is alive. Our focus um, over this Holy Week has been to consider and to think about Jesus as our unexpected king. This, we talked about this on Palm Sunday a week ago, this display of Jesus as the king where they're, they're getting it partly right. They're recognizing the authority that he has, their hopes for him, and yet they're missing so much of it. And so as they place Jesus on that colt, as they parade him into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna and, and blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, the, the people are standing there and they're watching all of this unfold. And yet we recognize on this side of the cross that Jesus was coming not as the king that anyone expected or wanted even, but he came as the king we all needed. So in that moment, what, what to any onlooker would have appeared to be a coronation with shouts of praise and, and celebration became an execution. And I don't, I don't know for you um, how familiar you are with uh, defeat. I'm pretty well-versed myself. Um, I, I just, I'm, when I was a kid, like I always seemed to get on the team that lost. And, and when I had, I had two brothers, one was, is four years older than me, and he's bigger and stronger and faster and better. And then my little brother's about two years younger than me, and he's just more gifted and talented and coordinated and all these things, and luckier. Um, 
And, and I just always seem to be kind of on the losing side of, of the equation. So whether it was basketball or football or baseball or soccer or UNO, um, I, I always seem to come in like at third place between me and my brothers. I've told this story before, so I won't tell the, the full story, but when I was in high school, I was, I was literally on a basketball team that lost by 110 points. So they, like, the other team didn't score 110 points. We lost by 110 points. And when you're in that like, locker room at halftime um, and your coach is trying to like, pump you up, um, and when you're in that situation, you're down by 60 or so, the coach is just like, guys, let's just try to survive this and see. Like, there, it, there's a point in time in defeat, right, when you come to the conclusion that we're not coming back from this. Like, we're not, we're not coming back from being down 60 at halftime to, to beat this team. This, this is where the disciples of Jesus found themselves on Sunday morning. They, they, they had placed their faith, their life, their hope in this person, and now all that's gone. They had staked their lives that, that he was going to ride into Jerusalem and he was going to overthrow the powers of Rome and free them from the oppressors. And he ends up being tried as a criminal, publicly humiliated, beaten to near death and then displayed on a cross so that everyone around them, everyone who, who was surrounding Jerusalem would be able to know to see firsthand his defeat. And for those who had followed Jesus, in their hearts, in their minds, there was no coming back from this. In fact, all they could do at that point in time themselves was to hide and to hope that, that the same result didn't come on them. And this is where we pick up the story now. This is Luke chapter 24. I'm actually going to jump back into the end of chapter 23 beginning in verse 55. Luke writes this. He says, The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. So this is after the crucifixion. This is on Friday. And then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. And so they... they place Jesus in the tomb, and yet they're not able to complete all the typical burial process because it's Sabbath. And so they leave in order to go honor the Sabbath to rest, and now they're coming back on Sunday morning. Verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, 
Mary, the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering what had happened. This morning, I want us to just take a few moments to think about the implications of the empty tomb in our lives and for us as the church. And this, the first thing that we see in this text that I think we need to spend some time on is, is what I'm calling a critical question. It's a critical question because I think this is the moment that changes everything. The, the impact of this question asked of these women as they came to the tomb and, and they're coming, it noted in the test, for a very specific purpose, right? And then they hear this question, and they hear the declaration, and they leave there to be the very first people ever to preach the gospel. They, they become the very first followers of Jesus to proclaim the news that the defeat, which at one time seemed so certain, so um, uh, in this inability to turn around, to win, has now been undone and upended. And it comes to him with a question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? And I would argue for us as, as the church, this question continues to reorient our lives some 2,000 years later. When I was a kid, I, I grew up in southern Ohio, and uh, one of our family activities in the summer was to go to this, this local amusement park. And at the amusement park, there was like a kind of a central, um, uh, in the middle of the uh, park, there was like this, this big structure. And in fact, I brought a picture of it so you guys can see it. You know what that is? It's the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> at least that's what I was told. Right? In Kings, has anybody ever been to Kings Island near Cincinnati? All right, a lot of fun. You gotta ride the beast. Um, and, and in the center of this park is this replica of the Eiffel Tower. But when you're like a four-year-old, you don't know it's a replica. They, just, they literally call it the Eiffel Tower. And so I just thought, okay, this is, this is the Eiffel Tower. This was my understanding of what the Eiffel Tower was. And then I went to school, and it turns out it's in Paris. Um, <laughs> And this is actually about a third of the size of, of the real thing. But my perception of what the Eiffel Tower was did not match. It was far too small for the truth of what the Eiffel Tower was. See, again, notice the expectations coming to the tomb. At the end of, of chapter 23, we discover in verse 55 that the women were, they were there when Jesus' body was put in the tomb. They saw it firsthand. And then in the verse 1 of 24, it simply notes that on the first day of the week, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Their, their expectations were clear. They're not, they're not going there to see if Jesus has risen from the dead. They're they're going there to find a body, to finish the burial process. And that's when they arrive at the scene, and then what they discover there begins to shock them. In verse 2, it simply notes that they found the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. 
This boulder that was placed in front, Matthew goes into greater detail about this, but there was a boulder that was placed in front, it was sealed, and there was a, a Roman centurion guard that was set there to make sure that nobody messed with the tomb, that nobody would try to to steal his body and claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. And now this stone is, is gone. This obviously evokes some sense of wonder and curiosity among the women who had came, come to the tomb. And so this verse 3 just notes they went inside and it says that they did not find the body of their Lord Jesus. So can you, if you can just try to place yourself in this moment, Imagine all the, the questions that were running through their mind. Imagine just the, the amount of emotion and confusion you're experiencing. You're approaching in all the pain and the disillusionment that you had uh, from watching this, this hero that you had placed your faith and hope in, that he was going to free your people. You had watched him brutally beaten and die on a cross. You're going there in order to finish the burial process. And when you get there, his body's gone. Like, imagine the unanswered questions. Who took him? Why? What, what could they possibly have wanted with his body? Imagine how disoriented you would be in that moment. Seeing everything that, that you're seeing after witnessing everything that you had seen just days before. And it's the midst of this confusion and fear and, and disillusionment that this question comes. This transformative question. And it says two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning. Later in this same chapter, those two men are identified as, as angels. They show up on the scene and they ask this question, why do you look for the living among the dead? And it's in this question that these disciples of Jesus for the first time begin to see and understand and conceive what is happening. It's for the first time after two and a half days where they had come to the conviction, they had come to the belief that their view of Jesus was, was way too small. Their view, their understanding of who Jesus was and what he would be able to accomplish, it wasn't that it was... Uh, it wasn't that it was too small, it's that it had been too big. That they had put too much hope, too much stake in what he was going to be able to do. And it's with this question, this poignant question, that the followers of Jesus begin to have their eyes opened to what Jesus' ultimate mission is and to his ultimate purpose. For the first time, they're beginning to discover, they're beginning to understand that their vision of Jesus, it's not that it was too big. Rather, it's that it wasn't big enough. That their concept of Jesus wasn't big enough. I think it's, it's um, when we look at, at our lives, and, our, and I can't speak to all the details that you experience and everything that's going on in your own heart and life, and, but when we think about what's in front of the church, when we think about what's uh, the opportunities in our culture, when we think about the things that we face individually, we have to ask ourselves the question, is my view of Jesus too small? If, if we're going to live out this kingdom vision, if we're going to take his word seriously and think about what he taught us as the church, 
When you think about the Sermon on the Mount and the vision that he put in front of us, we have to ask ourselves the question, is our vision of Jesus too small? Because for those disciples, when they came on that day, when they walked to that grave, they came with a set, a belief that they were coming to prepare a body for burial. And they walked away understanding that their, that their vision, their view of Jesus, it's not that it was too big, but that it was far too small. See, this question challenges our view of Jesus. It, it reorients our lives around his purpose. It enlarges our expectations. It's that that Jesus came to, to make us better people. He, he didn't hang on a cross to give us a, a, a little bit more meaningful of a life. Jesus didn't die for a slightly improved version of ourselves. I would argue that that is merely looking among the dead for the living. Jesus came that we would have new life in him. He came to take spiritually dead people that were apart from God because of sin and to restore them into a relationship with the one who is holy, their very creator, because that's what we were designed for. He came that we would have new life in him. They would take that which was dead, dead in our transgression, scripture says, and make us alive again. And so we as the church, we should not settle for less. We, we should not settle for a view of Jesus that is less than the empty grave, that is less than what he accomplished on this morning and that day that the disciples are just beginning to understand for the very first time in their life. And of course, the impact of this question is, is profoundly felt in the statement that immediately follows, or this is the second thing we see here. I was just calling this a shocking statement back in verse 6. This is the statement that immediately follows the question. He says, why, are you, why do you look for the living among the dead? Verse 6, he is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And in verse 8, then they remembered, then they remembered the, his words. I think oftentimes life uh, has a way of teaching us that, that promises ex exceed experience. When you say that's generally true for you, and that oftentimes, even if we think about like modern marketing today, right, that, that the promise of what these products are going to give us, the reality of it is often falls short of that. Sometimes, I don't know why I do this, sometimes when I can't sleep, I'll go outside and turn on the TV, and for whatever reason, if, I'm, if it's late at night, I find like the home shopping network to be entertaining. <laughs> I, I never watch it during daylight hours, but 2 a.m., I don't know. Um, but if you ever watch that, and you think about all the promises that, that what they're trying to sell you are supposed to give you, like, we would have solved every human problem in the world right now with the Home Shopping Network if that was true, right? And we would all have six-pack abs because of this little belt that shocks us every 30 seconds or whatever. Like, like, there's so much there that they say, but life has taught us that the, that the promises is often, are, are oftentimes far greater than the reality. But here, with these words, with this statement... The promises of Jesus, the promises of God that, that were written in the prophets and in the Psalms and, 
in, in the, the, the law of the Old Testament, all of it is validated in this moment. It's all been leading to this point when the angel says to the women, he is not here, he has risen. Every promise that he's ever made, every promise that you have ever heard from God is validated by the fact that Jesus walked out of that tomb on that Sunday morning. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith. And it's not, it's not a metaphor that we use for overcoming difficulty or beating the odds. I'm talking about the bodily return to life from the dead of Jesus. And this is the moment. This is the event. It, it validates our hope. It backs the promise. And if you ever, when you're maybe out there trying to buy your first car, have you ever had to like, go to the bank to try to get a loan and they look at your credentials and say, this isn't enough, right? So you go ask your dad or uh, uncle or somebody to kind of be a co-signer. They, they're looking for something greater than you to say, to guarantee the promise. But here's the truth in the, in the gospel is I don't bring anything to the table. I don't have any credential, any credit that I come with to say, here, God, is this is why you should find me acceptable. This is why you should allow me into your kingdom. I come with nothing. The promise is fully backed. It's fully guaranteed by what Jesus has done and what he has accomplished. It's fully guaranteed, fully backed by the empty tomb. This is the promise of the gospel. So when we talk about, when we say things like in Christ, when we place our faith in Jesus, that, that we are seen as blameless Without accusation, Colossians says. Why should you believe that? What, what, what would give you any reason to think it's not just a promise that's overstated? I'll tell you why. Because he is risen. He is not here. When, when Jesus said to his disciples, I've come that you may have life, John chapter 10, and have it in the full. What? What gives you any sense of confidence that that could possibly true, be true? He is not here. He has risen. When one of us stands up on this stage and we talk about God's boundless grace, when, when we talk about how there is nothing in our lives, no thought, no word, no action that God's grace cannot cover, to use Paul's language, when sin increased, grace abounded all the more. How can you back that kind of promise? Because I'll be honest with you, when we hear this in human terms, that sounds too good to be true. I'll tell you why you can believe it. Because on that morning, in that moment, when those women walked out of the tomb, those angels said, he's not here. He has risen. Why can we have any sort of confidence that these words are true and that they'll be delivered on because the promise is backed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's the foundation, the core of our faith. In fact, when Paul talks about it, and we can turn to this, is in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In this very sort of honest way, he says, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, then everything that we hold true, every belief that we have taught, the, the very nature of the gospel itself is useless and pointless. He says it this way. This is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 
Like, that's pretty straightforward. More than that, he says, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So he's talking about our, our future resurrection because of our faith in Jesus. He says, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He's saying the entire promise, all of it from page one to the very last page hangs on this moment that Jesus conquered the grave, that he raised from the dead. And because of that, we have eternal life in him. If that's not true, the gospel we preach is a lie. And hope is an illusion. But I've got, great, I've got great news. He is not here. He has risen. It validates our hope. And this, this all results then in this life-giving invitation. This is the third thing I want us to think about this morning. This life-giving invitation. I, I don't know if you've ever been like the recipient of just like an overwhelming generous gift like where somebody just does something for you that you're like i don't i don't even know how to receive this more often i think we're more familiar with seeing that we think about it oftentimes as that happening for somebody else right it's like we saw the oprah show when she gave everybody a car and they're all screaming and, and that sort of thing or you see the news story where a a uh, celebrity will leave like a thousand dollar tip for their waiter or their waitress at a restaurant, and you think, that's incredible. That must, that's, that's a life-changing gift. And that's awesome that that happened for them. I wish that would happen for me, right? I saw a couple of years ago, there was a, uh, a commencement speaker who at the end of his speech, as he was delivering this, it was college graduation, announced to all the graduates that he was going to pay off all their student loans, right? You know what immediately goes through my mind? Why didn't that guy speak at my commencement, right? <laughs> like, why couldn't we have gotten him? Like, we're, we, we have this concept, this idea of this overwhelming grace, this overwhelming generosity, but do we understand that it's for us? That it's happened for us? Notice what results from, from this encounter at the grave. If you go back into Luke 24, the, the women feel this, immediate need to share the story so it says in verse 9 when they came back from the tomb they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others it was mary magdalene joanna mary the mother of james and the others with whom who told this to the apostles but they did not believe the women because their words seemed like them to like nonsense peter however got up and ran to the tomb bending over it he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So the immediate response of the women was, we have to go share this news. Like, they need to be aware of this. And the immediate response of those who heard it was, that's too, that's too good to be true. In fact, if you read through the rest of Luke chapter 24, you see Jesus begin to reveal himself to groups of other disciples, other followers of Jesus. More and more people are having this personal encounter with him. And then he shows up to the 11 to be able to be with them, for them to see him firsthand. And these are his words to him after he has met with them. This is in verse 44 now. 
He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written in me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to understand that this news that was proclaimed on that Easter Sunday, that this is for you. This this was done for you. The invitation of the death-conquering, victorious king is for you. As the resurrected Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, he opens their minds to what he has done and to who he is. And I honestly, I, I would argue that this is some of the strongest evidence If you look at the life of the disciples post this this moment, this is some of the strongest evidence for the historical truth of the resurrection. For For the very first time, these disciples begin to grasp the nature, the type of king that Jesus came to be. And they begin to understand the type of kingdom that he has ushered in. And that this is a kingdom that they are invited into. It's a kingdom that we are invited into. It's for us. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, he writes. John, who would refer to himself as the one Jesus loved, says it this way. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we may live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know how God views you? How he thinks about you? He thinks you're worth dying for. In fact, he thinks you're worth conquering death for. He conquered death itself to be your victorious king so that Sin and shame and guilt that we experience in in this life, they have no claim on you. They have no accusation against you when we place our faith in Jesus. When we place our faith in Jesus and the power of his resurrection, Scripture says we are declared free. And we have the empty grave as our guarantee. And I love how, I love the takeaway here is that we bear witness. We, we, those of us who have come to understand this, those of us who have received the news that the grave is empty, that death and hell and sin, that all of it has been defeated, those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus and had our lives transformed by his grace and mercy, we bear witness to the victorious king who has done this on our behalf. We tell anyone that's willing to listen, that he has risen. And again, coming back to that verse we read earlier in the service, this is the way Peter words it. And we, we've been talking about this verse, and we'll return to our study of 1 Peter next week. We'd love to have you join us. But this is the way Peter grounds everything about our faith with these words. He says, this is 1 Peter 1, 3. Praise be 
to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Lord, from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the ability to gather as a community to acknowledge and declare the risen Savior, the victorious King, Lord, who did all of this because he loves us. And so, God, would you expand our vision of you? Lord, when our, when our view of you is, is far too small, when it's less than the king who overcame the grave, Lord, would you open our eyes and renew our minds? Lord, would we live with the truth that, that the hope we have is validated, it's guaranteed by what you accomplished on the cross and what you overcame on Easter Sunday? So send us to bear witness to the work that you have done and to the hope that you have brought to our world. And we ask these things in the name of our risen King. Amen.